W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's up, peeps, and welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your show host, Darren McDuffie, alias Fat Man, because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned and conscious, of course. Today's episode is with Deb Shapiro, and it's on her book, Your Body Speaks Your Mind. What if illness was a gift instead of a curse? What if illness was here to teach us something? Why are we not listening to the body? So today's episode delves a little bit more into that. And this episode inspired something from me. Deb and I get into the fear of death. And it's something that I experienced personally in my own life. And it actually, like I said, inspired a blog post that I'm going to be writing. So tune into the blog at perfectlyhealthyandtone.com and you will see that blog post. It should be coming up soon. Before we get into Deb's episode, wanted to remind you of the episode I did last week with Dr. Neil Bernard on the cheese trap. A lot of people are eating cheese. Cheese, glorious cheese is what I call it. But do you know where cheese comes from? Do you know if the government has some kind of interaction with these companies who are providing the cheese to us? And those are some things that we answer on the episode with Dr. Neil Bernard. So again, I encourage you to go in and listen to the cheese trap with Dr. Neil Bernard had fun doing that episode and learned a lot that I didn't know about cheese personally. And like I said before on the episode is that I don't really eat cheese. I kind of eliminated that from my diet. But there are some things, again, that I didn't know personally about this particular product that you might want to know. So again, listen to that episode. Now let's get into what we're going to learn on this particular podcast. So what are you going to learn in this podcast? The first thing is how much of illness is emotional? The answer is going to surprise the heck out of you. Next, how do you surrender to an illness? I know for me personally, when I got into this type of work and started studying more about consciousness and health, surrendering had a negative connotation to it. Deb and I talk about really surrendering to an illness and what that really means. To what degree do we create our own reality? Again, this is something that I've studied over a period of years. And again, Deb and I talk a lot more about this and how we create our reality and to what degree, as I've said. Next thing is, why does the body even manifest illness? What happens in this particular instance and why does it happen? What is the difference in curing and healing? There's a big difference in these two things. And we talk about this on a podcast. And finally, this is something I've never talked about on any podcast. And again, It's something that I've been studying over a period of years, and it is called What is Chakras? So Deb goes over what are chakras. If you've never heard of chakras, then you're in for a treat, and you'll learn a little bit more about that. And I would encourage you to do some studying on your own about chakras and how they help us with with our consciousness. So before I get into the podcast... Let me give you Deb's bio. Ed and Deb Shapiro have been teaching mindfulness and meditation together for over 30 years. They are the authors of 17 books on meditation and personal growth. Their latest is award-winning Be the Change, How Meditation Can Transform You and the World. Deb is the award-winning author of Your Body Speaks Your Mind. 
Ed and Deb had led meditation retreats and personal development programs worldwide for over 25 years. They are corporate consultants and coaches and are featured columnists on HuffingtonPost.com, Awaken.com, and Oprah.com. Their radio show, Going Out of Your Mind, is on VividLife.com. All right, welcome to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Today we are discussing Your Body Speaks Your Mind with Deb Shapiro. Deb, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Thank you. Welcome. Well, I read your book, and I must say that this is something that I've been getting into over time because I realized that there was something that was missing from the state of health. And I always felt like we had the know-how to deal with things from a symptomatic basis, whereas we had medicine and all kind of other things, but we weren't really dealing with the mind. And your book particularly deals with the mind, but more so emotions. But before we get into that, I always ask my guests how they got into health. And you seem like you have a pretty interesting background. So tell tell the audience how you got into it. I mean, I've I've lived a long enough life to have uh, been involved in the, the 60s and the hippies and in the 70s in learning massage and different forms of body work and meeting wonderful mentors along the way that opened doors for me that just made me realize eventually that this relationship, like you were saying, we know what to do with symptoms, but we don't know what to do with everything else that's going on inside us. And the more I realized that relationship between that there really is no separation between body and mind, that the one reflects and and exemplifies the other so you know like a a bad knee is that part of your mind manifesting in the knee and so it was just a matter of working it backwards constantly working it backwards until you can sort of begin to to just keep going into that place and what it's actually saying yeah so very very eclectic way to get where i am but it, it sort of emerged more and more as i went on and just kept asking more and more questions Yeah, it's a very thorough book. But one thing I like about your book is that you talk about the physical state. Most of the books that are out there talk about more of the emotional state, which is good. But you tend to talk about environmental factors and then you kind of coalesce into talking about the body mind. And we'll get more into that. I'm going to admit something to you that I don't admit to any of my guests. I very rarely read the intro to a book, but something compelled me to read the intro to your book. And I'm glad I followed my tuition. But in your intro, this is something that I think is important and I wanted you to kind of embellish it. But in your in your book, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it here or, or take it from your quotes, it says human beings are extremely good at inventing unbelievably, unbelievably complicated pieces of technology and stunning, beautiful designs and understanding detailed scientific theories or producing majestic musical compositions. There's one area where our understanding fathers falters i'm sorry understanding faults can't read this is a relation to ourselves in particular to our own bodies what i've found is that a lot of times in my own experience is that the body is very simple and the body is very literal but do we have in our society a need to overcomplicate things and that's why i think people don't get this this mind body connection I, i wanted you to speak on that a little bit You know, from what I've seen, and this is not a put down at all, but our egos get highly involved in our stories. And 
our story, whether it's a prognosis or an abuse or an addiction or whatever it might be, becomes the way in which we identify with ourselves. And so, as you so beautifully put it, the body is really very simple. It's almost like the ego has to make it bigger and more and less simple, more complicated. And, you know, like, I'm having surgery. It's like this huge weight on us. I am having to go through this. You know, and in a couple of days, it'll all be over and everything will be fine. And, and, and so it's the same with so many different things in our life. We take it on as a means of identity. And it's, I, I remember one of my, uh, the people who came to one of my workshops, she was 82, and she had just moved into an assisted living home. And she said, I'm having a really hard time. I'm getting ostracized by the other residents because I don't have anything wrong with me. And all they talk about is what's wrong with them. And when I don't have anything, when I, all I can say is I'm fine, they don't no longer talk to me. So here's a lovely example of how we identify with our story. And if we don't have a story, we don't have anything to tell others. And we're not important. You know, that that's funny because I remember I was on a plane going to California and I was just paying attention to the conversation behind me. And, and it's, it is if we relate to others through negativity, because I remember there was a woman on the plane and she was explaining what type of work she did. And there was another gentleman sitting behind him. And I just happened to hear the conversation from where I was sitting. I was sitting in front. They were sitting in back of me. But they were telling each other how it was so hard for them to find good employees. And I'm thinking that, you know what, that's why it's hard for you to find good employees, because you're saying that and you're voicing it. And that's your belief. And just that your story that you told about the woman saying that she had nothing wrong with her. It's as if we just relate to others through negativity. And when we get together, we talk about you know, things that we've gone through, a lot of pain that we've had, and we don't really look at things from a stance of how we would like things to be, so to speak. I don't know if I'm making sense here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's totally true. We are, you know, affirmations have a wonderful role in life, but negative affirmations, the negative equivalent of affirmations is a constant. We're always putting ourselves down. We're always feeling we're not good enough. We're always focusing on what's wrong. We're, you know, it, it, it's like an inbuilt self-destruction that we, we play out. And when we move beyond that and we go into a place of joy and happiness, it wouldn't, it doesn't matter what's wrong with us physically, we can still be totally joyful. We can still feel completely perfect within ourselves, even if the body is falling apart. It's, it, we don't have to identify with what's wrong. It's always an opportunity. We can always do that. It's always there waiting for us to identify with it. But if we choose not to, then a much deeper joy arises. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Also in the intro of the book, this is something that, that caught my eye as well. You said in in, in Hippocrates Day, Hippocrates is actually the, the father of modern medicine. It said it took into account not just symptoms, but also the climate, the race, the living conditions and social and political environment of the client. We at this time spend, I think, about seven minutes when a person goes to a doctor. The doctor has seven minutes to talk to that person, diagnose them and, and put them out the door and get on to the next patient. Why is it that we're not spending a lot of time with people learning what they do? I know when I went to the doctor, I had a questionnaire and they asked me what I did. I said sales, but nowhere along that time that my doctor ever discussed, hey, is your job stressful? How do you like your job or anything of that nature? Why do you think we kind of glance over these oh, things? Oh. <laughs> this is the power of money, isn't it? 
Yeah. It's the power of money and insurance and all, you know, the doctors have way too much to do, don't get paid enough to do it and don't have the resources to just sit down with someone for half an hour and talk with them. And as my doctor in England once said to me, you know, stress is 90% of the problem with the people who come to see me and medication will not cure stress, but I have nothing else to give them. And so we go in with all these issues and we come out with more pills and we think we're getting cured. And of course, it's not going to work or the symptoms will come back or something else will arise, of course, because we're not addressing the root cause. So I read something one time, I think, with the CDC and they said that 90 I want to say 97 or 98 percent of illness has emotional roots. I tend to believe it's a little bit more. I think it's 100 percent. And I want to ask you, what do you think? You've written a book. So what do you think? Is... <laughs> I therefore the expert. I agree with you. I think it's it's actually I would, I would give a little tiny one percent in there for, you know, there's always a mystery. It doesn't matter whether we're coming from emotional, spiritual, physical there's always a place where we won't understand. And that's wonderful. Embrace the mystery. Know that there is something going on that's bigger than us and that we may not be able to put it in writing or grasp it. And there are, will be a time when we have to surrender to that. But the, the difference is our ability to surrender to it and not have to understand it. Let the mystery be a mystery. Yes. So how do you get into that place? Because if you have an illness and I've dealt with some before, it wasn't an illness. It was just something that I was going through. And I thought the more that I fought, uh, I would fight it, the more that I realized it would just persist. And it wasn't until, like you saying, that I realized that I should surrender to that is that when I had this somewhat of a breakthrough. But how do you get yourself in a space if you have an illness where you have something that's life threatening, like a cancer or a, uh, you know, anything? How, how do you get your space in yourself in that space of really surrendering? Yeah, it's, that's a, a good question and a difficult one at the same time mm -hmm. because we're entering into that place of spiritual understanding rather than just dealing with a physical illness. If we're dealing with a physical illness from a physical point of view, we won't be able to get to that surrender place. We will fight it. We will do everything we can to, to, to try and cure it. From a body-mind point of view, you might want to then just really work with with un trying to understand it from an emotional, mental point of view, but there will still be a place that you will eventually come to where it's like, I can't actually control this or I can't actually really grasp this, so I am just going to make friends with it. And that is the surrender, is the making friends with it. It's the letting go of the fight. It's not becoming a doormat. It's not giving in and letting it rule you it is making friends with it, which means that you coexist. You are able to say, yes, I have this illness. It does this to me, but I am also this. I am also free. I am also perfect. And so you can coexist rather than be dominated by one. Does that make sense? That that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's a, the, the whole concept of surrender is very, very difficult for people if they haven't experienced it, because it does sound like you're becoming a doormat and everybody can walk all over you. It does sound like you're just giving up. And it's not that at all. It's not a giving up, but it's not a fight either. Yeah. And that's something that I had to realize because I would always talk 
to fight, to fight and fight. And it wasn't until I just decided that, you know what, I'm just going to give up or, or let go was when I had that breakthrough. And again, it wasn't an illness for me, but it was just something that I, I was constantly fighting with. And I, I remember the day that I decided, I said, you know what, I'm just going to let it go. And that's when the breakthrough happened. But I See, could- there's a difference when you just put your finger on. Letting go is not the same as surrendering. Surrendering is where you let the other have power over you. It's like you give in to it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about letting go of the fight, which means making friends. It means coexisting. It means being at peace with what is happening. And that's, yes, that's when you can deepen your understanding more easily. Well, do you think that using that word surrender kind of connotates something negative? Because when you surrender to something, it's usually like, oh, I don't really want to do it, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, it has a negative, it can have a negative connotation to it, definitely. And can therefore be easily misunderstood. And that's why it needs to be really gotten that it's, it's actually making friends with something, coexisting with something rather than letting it take over. And you mentioned control. I had an issue with that, but I want to go on. But we could, we could just, we could take a whole podcast oh, and talk about there's, just there's that so issue. Many, there are so many aspects of, of our personality, our egos that get in there, whether it be control or fear or fighting or whatever it might be. And all of that, in ultimately, all of that has to go. But it's not just a matter of clicking your fingers, obviously. Yeah, I know. I had to fight my ego every step of the way. And it wasn't until I just said, you know what, you got to get out of the way for me to, to move forward is when things happen. Right. In the book, you mentioned something called neuropeptides. Let's talk about that a little bit more. And I know that within that, you also kind of tied into the book, the limbic system, which is kind of the emotional center of the brain. And within the limbic system, we have and a lot of people have probably heard this before, too, because I know that it's been big as far as being discussed by different people, the amygdala, which is, I guess, the, the fear center of the brain. But let's talk about those neuropeptides and why they are important. I'd rather put this in language that people are going to understand because I'm not a scientist. I don't want to try and explain all this and take the time doing that. Let's just say that the emotions are translated in, into chemicals, chemical reactions in the body. And so fear or love, you can sort of feel immediately they have a different effect in your body. And that's exactly true of all of the emotions. And so it will go out into your body and create the response that isn't always positive. So for instance, we feel sadness. Something happens. We feel sad. And almost instantly, tears will come. Now, tears are a physical response to an emotion. That emotion becomes a chemical that goes out into the body. When we say chemical, we mean like hormones, we mean neuropeptides. We mean these different substances that float around in the bloodstream. So cry or sadness becomes that which triggers the tears, a physical response to an emotion. That's the way it works. And so if it's a negative emotion, it will ultimately have a very debilitating effect in the body. And if the more we can enter, put those positive emotions into the body, the more it will be a strengthener. Yeah, you had an experiment in here, which is which is quite 
Which is good because it gets people to see. I think a lot of times with our society, what it is, is that seeing is believing and it should kind of be the other way around. But we've been taught that seeing is believing. But for those people out there who are skeptic, I remember the experiment in a book where you have people think about something that was negative and then have them hold their, their arm out and have some. Well, it, it's, it's an old, um, old, old one, actually, you know, when that the easiest way to do you're doing this with somebody else, they will have to help you here. When you stick the arm, your arm out directly in front of you and hold it steady so that if they try to push it down with one of their hands, they're standing at your side and they try to push it down, they can't do it. However, when you have a negative thought such as about yourself, you know, really don't like yourself or something very negative that's happened to you and they try to push your arm down, woo, it's as soft as can be. They can just push it straight down. And then if you reverse that and you have a really loving, positive thought about yourself or something or someone and they try to push your arm down, they won't be able to at all. So it is, like you say, an instant seeing and believing. And it usually cracks up a workshop, I have to say that, mm -hmm. <laughs> where they really get that this is the, the effect. This is the, the effect of all that negative thinking is a constant weakener within the system. Talking about thoughts, because that's what we're talking about, thoughts and emotions. When we have these thoughts, and I know a lot of this is big on what we would call, I'm trying to see what word I'm looking for here, the new age of thought where people say you create your own reality. I thought it was very interesting in your book to say you may create your own reality, but the sense that I got from reading what you wrote was that don't beat yourself up and don't think that you create your reality in a sense that you can control everything that's happening to you. Talk about that a little bit. more. Oh, exactly. I love this one. <laughs> um, you know, on, a, on one level, yes, we create our own reality because the way in which we think will attract to us a, a correspondent. So if we think out negative, we will attract negative. That's the way it works. However, we're not alone here. And everybody else is doing the same thing as us. And so we're bound to bump into each other and thoughts are bound to bump into each other's thoughts. And so other people's realities will also come into ours and ours will come into theirs. And so I always prefer to think it's not so much that we're responsible for, that we create our own reality, but we are responsible for how we respond to it. So if we, you know, if a negative situation is occurring, rather than go, oh, poor me, poor me, and, and really go down with the negativity and blame ourselves, we can respond in a different way. And that's where we have real choices. So we may not have much choice in our circumstances or in other people's thoughts going on around us, but we do have a choice in how we respond to them. And that's more where we can shape our reality than anywhere else. If we just say, oh, you know, we create our own reality, immediately you start blaming yourself and you start thinking all the things that you do wrong and you start going into that hopeless place, which is really not good for anyone. Yeah. Can that be the difference? Because I remember in one in the book, in one of your examples, you said there was a woman that had cancer and she I think was blaming herself because she had this illness. Is that the difference in someone who has an illness that could be fatal in which they, like we spoke earlier within the interview of just surrendering and saying, Hey, you know, I have this illness. What is it here to teach me versus someone just saying, Hey, 
I'm just going to blame myself. And there's a lot of shame and guilt totally, behind that. Totally. I, I, in my early days, I trained with, I was living in Hawaii and I trained with a very old Japanese man there whose only job he saw himself as doing is going, whenever somebody was diagnosed with cancer, he would go and sit with them and talk with them until they finally got why they had cancer. And then he said, my job's done. Now it's up to them to just to see how they can relate to that. And this is, it comes back to making friends with what's happening to us To I, I think the other thing is, is this identity crisis we have. We identifying with everything that's wrong. If we identify with the body as us, as being me, and we are therefore in, and then it goes wrong, then we're going to identify with what's wrong, and we are going to become that that is wrong. I am a cancer patient. Rather than recognizing that who I am is free of the body. It's not, it's not, the body's not the whole of me. It's an expression of me, but it's not only an expression. It's not an expression of my freedom. And so if the body does have cancer, yes, I am dealing with cancer. The cancer is there, but actually the cancer can become your friend because the body will manifest different issues in order for us to really learn from that, to make friends with that and learn what is, you know, you see, to see this as a wonderful opportunity to get to know ourselves better rather than going under it and feeling, oh, my God, I'm so hopeless. Uh, it's a big change, you know, to, to when somebody is dealing with a, with a major illness, to be able to sit with them and talk with them and help them understand that this is a wonderful opportunity, that even if they, they die from this, it doesn't mean they failed. And it doesn't mean that who they are is bad. It's so important to get that one. Yeah, it's, you talk about this, and this is, I guess, from hearing you speak, reading the book, something came to me and it just, it just says illness is a message. But just as we were, you were just talking about, why don't we treat it as such? Is it because we are in a fear state? Whereas we have cancer, we have something and we're saying, oh my God, I I'm going to die. Cause a lot of people fear death. They don't know well, what's going to happen. It's all part of it. This is all a part of it. Obviously the fear of death is going to color how we react to a life-threatening illness. And this is, so this is, there's, we can't separate our fears and especially the fear of the future and the fear of failing and the fa fear of being wrong and the fear of, of whatever it might be. When we can make friends with it, then that fear doesn't stand much chance. We can embrace the fear and acknowledge, yes, I am fearful, but that's not gonna actually get you anywhere. The, the, the beauty of who you can become is even if you are somebody with an illness, you can still be a joyful, happy person. That You can still be healed yourself. That's the difference. I remember the World Health Organization talking about healing as being a whole, whole thing, that, that getting cured was only curing the part, that real healing is the whole of you. And so we can get cured. But to get healed means finding that wholeness within ourselves, regardless of what state the rest of us is in. Talk about that more, because I wanted to get into that. And you provide a great segue <laughs> with curing versus actually healing. And you touched on a little bit, but I wanted you to maybe. OK, talk about I, I a little bit more. a wonderful story I have that actually came from my dear friend Mark Barish from his book. So a woman is in an unhappy marriage. And so she's smoking cigarettes as a result to relieve the tension. 
And as a result of smoking cigarettes, she gets lung cancer. So is the lung cancer a result of the cigarettes or is it a result of the unhappy marriage? So you can cure something, but are you curing it? Are you just mending that particular part, like a broken leg? We can fix a broken leg, but are we fixing the reason why that leg got broken? No, not necessarily. Exactly. There's the difference. So I had somebody who really was about to get married and he realized he really didn't want to get married. And his leg broke. He broke his leg two weeks before he was due to go down the aisle. And when it came to it, he couldn't walk. Mm. And they had to cancel the wedding. And and so, you know, it's it's just looking to see where does, where, where why is that part of the body reacting like it is? You had a lot of great quotes in, in the book yourself and a lot of great quotes that were taken from other people. One of the things that I've never really came across that I came across in your book is talking about the origin of symptoms of things falling together. Mm. Within that, what I've learned is that when a person has cancer, when a person has some type of major illness, as we're talking about on this podcast, it usually doesn't happen within a day or two. It's something that has been built up over years. And the way that my mind works is that I always tend to connect dots. So I'm thinking if we have someone that has cancer, those emotions have been in a repressed state for a long time. Then all of a sudden the body just says, hey, you haven't been paying attention to this. Now it's time for you to pay attention. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It's it's absolutely, and which is why in the book, we talk about, first of all, you, you need to start looking back. Usually it's within two years, but often it, the, the cause of what you're looking at goes way much further back. But something happened within the last two years that brought it up to the current picture, put it up back into your mind. So, for instance, you might have been abused or had a horrible childhood or something went on in your childhood that you buried, basically. And then later in life, something happens that brings up something to around that, something connected to that. And usually within about two two to three years, something physical is also, unless you deal with it, something physical is also emerging. And so you can begin, yes, you can begin to see this pattern, but you do need to keep walk, walking backwards, as it were. And not everybody is willing to do that. But if you do, the more you can begin to see the pattern, you can begin to see where it might have arisen from. If if we do this work, because I don't, I know there are people that are going to be out there who are going to be listening to the co- the podcast and they'll say, well, I'm going to do this work. If we do this work, we go back and we find out what happened to us in the past where we might have had these emotional traumas. Is that necessarily saying that we are going to cure an illness or heal an illness? Not necessarily. Okay, usually, but not necessarily. We can find the cause of the illness, and that's the most important thing. Those are There's the lessons to be learned. And so we can enter into those that cause and really embrace it and forgive ourselves or forgive others or enter you know, whatever is needed to work with that. That will le- release the energy in the body. If there's more for us to look at, the body will keep being ill, basically. Plus... The body, the physical body, is much slower to change. And once the physical body has gotten into a certain pattern, for instance, with an illness, it may be very difficult to get it out of that pattern. And we have to accept accept that, that we can be healed within ourselves, but the physical body may not be cured. If we get into these patterns, is it because we have a, a certain thought pattern 
or is that just just totally off base? If we change our our thought pattern, maybe we can change the pot, the pattern of the the physical body. Yeah, absolutely, everything and anything is always possible. That's the beauty of change and of the mind and of the body. Everything is always moving, changing, and so yes, the deeper we can go within ourselves, and the deeper we can accept and make friends with what is happening, the more change is possible. I would never want to give someone false hope, but at the same, you know, to to say yes, if you do this, you will definitely get better, because sometimes having the illness is the the what's needed. I don't see death or illness as a failure at all, and so even if we die because of what's happening to us, it doesn't mean to say that we have to die with any. Leftover negativity or fear within ourselves. You know, there there's something that that helped me. I, I lost my mom in 2005, and I talk about this a lot on on the podcast sometimes from cancer. But I remember being angry at my mom because I thought that she could have still been here. But it took me a while to come into grips with that. Sometimes. When a person wants to go, that's their choice, and you have to accept their choice. And I think a lot of times we don't accept someone's choice. And like you said, it's not a failure if someone chooses to di- chooses to die. It's, it was well, their it choice. is something we're all going to be doing at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so you know, overcoming the fear of that is huge, and and entering into a real embracing of death is wonderful. I. I met two people in in Thailand who ran a meditation center and they had been in a car with their two young children in a car accident and both the young children were killed and they had gone on to be running this meditation center where literally all they did was death awareness meditation and it was a really deep powerful experience to just go into that awareness of our own death and to embrace that and to feel that and to know it and to be comfortable with it and then to be able to see how we can live. This just came to mind and I want to ask you this. Do you think our present health culture is driven by a fear of death? Because most people are trying to eat the right things. Most people are trying to get the correct amount of sleep. But it seems to me that under the root of all that, a lot of people have a fear of dying. I agree. And for doctors, when somebody dies, they see it as a failure, and that gets transmitted to everybody else. You know, that we think of death as a failure, which is ludicrous. It's it's something, when you look at the natural world, everything comes and lives and dies. Everything has that movement. And we are a part of that. And this fear of that, or the unknowingness of it is probably bigger the fear of the unknowing of the unknown drives us to try and live as long as we can in as healthy as we can and there's no real proof that any of this works you know we can still live to 99 but at some point you're still going to have to die Mm -hmm. and it's so funny that when when i listen to different health podcasts because i listen to other people's podcasts and not just my own but I never mention, I never hear people talking about death under all of this stuff. It's just like, okay, yeah, you can eat this supplement, you can eat this supplement, but at some point we are all going to die. It's, I don't care how healthy you think you are at some point. Exactly. You're and going. So how, how much more important is it to make friends with that? Yes. And to embrace what is happening rather than running away from it. It touched me because my mom passed away and uh, kind of 
created something in me with wanting to get into health. But also I remember when the first first time I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to die at some point. So I got I got to be sur- surrendered to this. There's that word again and make friends with it because it's going yeah, to happen. It is going to happen. It's the one thing you can guarantee. Yes. You know, you may not be able to guarantee what will happen on the way to it at all, but it is going to happen. And oh, the freedom when we embrace that, when we can just say yes. And so in the meantime, this is what I can do or this is what I want to be, knowing that, it, that it's not going to go on forever. No. And that's actually to see the beauty in that rather than to be fearful of it. Talking about we're talking about psycho emotional factors. And you mentioned a lot in that in the book about that. They're huge. As I as I gather from your book, one thing that you said in your book that struck me as very profound is as few people grow up in a loving, supporting, supporting environment. Is that going to doom us at an older age? Because if we grow up in environments, a lot of people are under some, a lot of stuff as kids. You know, they grow up and they're abused. They have certain types of traumas. If they don't deal with that, at some point, that's going to click in and they're going to have an illness like a cancer or a, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I know for many people, cancer is the most dreaded thing they could ever get, but there's a lot of other illnesses that are out there. But again, does it doom us because we're not growing up in a loving, supporting environments? And it seems like from a spiritual aspect, we are here to love. Yes, sadly, that is where much of the Western world has come to is that despite all these things that we have in the Western world and think we're we're succeeding at, we do miserably at relationships and we are miserably bad at raising kids and looking after old people and, and stuff like that. And so, yes, many, many, many of us have rotten childhoods and have to confront all of that later on in life. It's what my husband and I have come to call, from a spiritual point of view, that this is like a spiritual boot camp. That what we go through as children, both, for instance, Ed and I had pretty, sort of childhoods you don't want other people to have to go through. But we both came to the realization from that, well, this is how you don't love. This is not what love is. You are given a choice when you go through a childhood like that to either perpetuate the same attitudes and behavior to your own children and live in that continual negativity or to make the change and redirect it and learn from it. So you can learn this is not what love is. This is not what health is. This is not what happiness is, but to therefore dedicate yourself to finding out what it is and to make the change from such a childhood or abusive that you might have have experienced. And It's a sad fact because in many places in the world, children live in a very different way. Um, But here, yes, we have managed to completely screw things up. And that is why there are so many therapists around and why so many of us need therapy. Because we haven't learned how to love and we haven't learned how to live in a non-harmful way. We can teach ourselves. This is the, the choice we have later in life. As we're adults, we can learn to to not create any more harm to ourselves or to others. We can learn to love. We can open the heart. This is the journey. And by doing this, we don't have to die in in pain. We don't have to die in a negative way. We're talking about these emotions. And obviously from hearing you speak, I'm getting the 
the knowledge that it's important for us to understand our emotional history. In understanding our emotional history, for a lot of people, it's hard to go back and get into those emotions because they have repressed them so long. And one of the things that you said in the book is that the mo the least trying to get the right language here, the least emotion that we express is rage. And is that because we're taught? I I don't know. People are taught not to get mad. They said, don't get angry. Don't get mad because it's the ugly thing. And many of us learn that ugliness from inside of our families that people we've seen, people who've gotten mad or upset. Is that one of the reasons why we are not expressing this rage and kind of getting it out and processing it so we can move on? I think there's a there's a fear of it. I mean, I, I, I my own story, for instance, my father was a very angry, very angry man. And so I lived with that for a few years and it was it had a very repressing exp- experience in me. I just shut away my own emotions by expressing my anger. I would become like him. And later on, when it, my first marriage, um, I suddenly hit that anger that was in me. And it was exploding out of me. And it suddenly made me realize, I mean, it ended my first marriage, but it made me have to go and do work on it and to really come to terms with this because I had basically inherited it from my father. I had learned what anger could do. I'd seen him in action. And yes, it was terrifying at first. My second husband, Ed, was a very different character who allowed me to be angry and still accepted me as I was. And that was so liberating that I was able to really finally make friends with it. So anger, rage within us is one of those emotions that we bottle up so deeply. It's not acceptable in society. You know, you're on a subway or whatever to suddenly start screaming with anger. It's not acceptable. You bottle it up. It's It doesn't help when we scream at people we love. It's it, as, as so so often we've heard, it's, it's like a, anger is like a match that can burn down a whole forest. You know, it can have devastating effects. So yes, we try to repress it. Again, there's a middle place between repressing and expressing, which is accepting. I am angry. I can feel that angry, that anger. I am experiencing it in every cell of my body. And let me continue breathing and let me continue acknowledging this and feeling where it's coming from and understanding it. So that there's this middle place between repressing and expressing. So I got a true or false for you. Your body believes every thought you think, true or false? <laughs> um, 99%. Mm, okay. You know, I think, yes, the body does believe us, believe the thoughts we have, but at the same time, the body is also fairly intelligent and has its own awareness. And that awareness is deeper within than the thoughts. It's within all of us, within every cell in our being. And so there are times when the body will say, oh, you're thinking that, but that's not true. You know, it won't always believe us. And our our cells have consciousness from from your book. You said that the cells have consciousness and they know certain things. Talk about that a little bit more. Well, that's what I'm saying in terms of the cells within ourselves. You know, I don't want to separate this. The cells have this and we have that. Within us, there is consciousness. There is complete awareness within every part of our being, physical, psycho-emotional, spiritual. There is awareness. And the more we are in tune with that awareness, the more we're in tune with ourselves. And so the more we give in to the negativity or the fear or the rage, 
the less the awareness is present, we become overcome by that. The fear takes over, the rage takes over, we lose that awareness. The more we can tune into that awareness, which is basically mindfulness, is basically being mindfully aware of what is going on mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, the more that has a voice. And the more the body can then express itself, and the more the mind and the emotions can express themselves through the body, because we're aware of the relationship, we're aware of that awareness within us. Yeah, through through going down this path, because I've been going down this path for, I think, for about two years, I always look at people, anytime someone gets sick or something happens, I always try to think about, even with people who are overweight, I always say, well, what type of emotions are behind this? Because I always know that there's some type of emotions that are behind whatever's going on. And we are more, it's as if we're blocking that part of us off that's more intuitive and can tell us what's going on. And sometimes we need someone to kind of pull that stuff out of us, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does completely. And at the same time, it's very important that we don't, and I'm not saying you are, that we don't judge anyone, Mm -hmm. judge others. As, oh, you know, someone's like this, therefore they thought like that. We don't know what's happened to someone's life. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know what they've already discovered about themselves. And don't know where they are on the journey. So simpler to just have a completely open mind to whatever is going on in anyone else's world and simply let's just be responsible for our own and for what's happening within ourselves. Yeah, we, we're coming up on some time here. It's not much, but I want. there's a few things I wanted to get in. And I want to make sure I get these things in before we we end here. But there's something that I have neglected to talk about on any podcast. And your book brought that to my attention. And that is chakras. You know, what is the importance of these chakras and what do we need to understand about them? Goodness. From my understanding, they are simply a representative of a level of perception. So that each one is simply showing us on a sort of, They've been manifested on a, on a, or seen on a symbolic physical level, but really they're talking about a different level of perception within ourselves. And so by understanding them, we can actually begin to lift that awareness within ourselves so that we're moving from a place of the ego and the individual self into one of power and, and then into the heart and then into a higher understanding. It's really just a movement of perception that we can then see from understanding the chakras how that maybe a particular level would influence the physical world around it and therefore the connection to different illnesses that might be well you know that the, the chakra itself might well be connected to one of those so they're fascinating and at the same time just another way of understanding ourselves and we don't have to understand them to understand ourselves just another clue in the picture do you believe on some level since we are repressing emotions we might have negative thoughts that we should be taught a little bit more about the powers of our minds and there's a lot of people out there who never really go on that journey and really understand how powerful the mind is and yeah and what they're creating but oh goodness yes i mean you know without being uh pointing fingers look at our current political situation 
here's someone who this is this is a perfect example of ego and the third chakra this this dominant power that only really acts in a selfish way and has very little awareness of the heart and of lifting that opening of opening to the heart and opening to everybody rather than just themselves it's it's yes we need to be taught so much more than we are it was interesting because recently two kids who live next door as soon as they just moved in before the winter and as soon as the first snowfall came they were over here clearing our sidewalk and ed immediately went to give them like a dollar each and their father came back a little while later with the two dollars in his hand and he said no we're raising our kids to do good things without being getting something in return and I said, oh, how rare. Oh, thank you. This is what we all need. <laughs> how to give without wanting something back in return. How to see the effect of, of, of negativity on the world around us. How to see our, how our egos are demanding stuff for ourselves instead of uh, other awareness, some you know, awareness of others. Um, there's so much. The teachings are there if we enter into meditation, if we enter into you know, really understanding the, the wisdom of the of the old the ancients, we will learn so much. But that first beginning of the journey, it has to be gone. It has to begin. That first step has to be taken, where we begin to look within ourselves for truths, for the answers. So, I kind of wanted to get into just the anatomy and going more into your your body mind technique and understanding what how to look at ourselves from this technique that that you discuss in the book for instance the anatomy of the head what the right. what is the head what does it do arms face your neck okay so so this is this is taking it down to to the basics as it were and the first place we can start is recognizing that each part of the body has a function what your hands do is very different to what your feet do what your eyes do is very different to what your knees do and so each part of the body has its own function. Even though it works as a whole, it also works as separate. And so our first place of understanding is recognizing what that function is. So let's take the knees, for instance. The knees are about bending, surrendering, giving in, walking, movement, allowing movement. So if something's going wrong with our knees, we can begin to see, okay, where in my life is this in conflict with what's happening. Where in my life am I not moving forward freely? Where in my life am I not surrendering? Where is my ego stopping me from giving, you know, from surrendering? There's a wonderful phrase of pride before a fall. So in other words, where is my pride making me so stiff that my knees can't give in and fall? I fall? These are all ways of beginning to understand. Now we will all have our own body-mind expression. So as much as I generalize in the book, it is with that awareness that each one of us, only one issue with one part of our body may apply to us, but you have to sort of look at all the issues. So, you know, what do hands do? You just go through each part of the, go to the part of the body that you are having difficulty with. Recognize what it's trying, you know, what its purpose is. And then you can begin to see, okay, so where is that purpose on an psycho-emotional level? Where is it being blocked or where am I not expressing it right? And you can go from there. Then you can look at the left and right sides of the body. And then, you know, so that there's a way of 
breaking it down until you can basically draw a one-inch map of the whole body and begin to pinpoint what the psycho-emotional relationship is and how that might be causing it to misfunction. Talk about that real quick because I thought that that was interesting. I've heard of this concept before, the left and right sides of the body. And matter of fact, if people have been listening to the podcast, they know that I was on a podcast talking about having a wart and it was on my bottom right foot. And since <laughs> since re- since really going through doing a lot of this work, that wart no longer gives me pain. But I know I know exactly what was behind it now. But talk about the left and right sides of the body and why well, that's important. Well, it's fascinating because we all, I mean, this is scientifically proven in, in more than way, you know, our brain, it, 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 it crosses over so that the right side of the brain reflects the left side of the body and the left side of the brain is, is joined to the right side of the body. And so you've got these two halves and generally speaking, the right side of the body is that which is the rational, outward, working, external part of us, masculine usually, but this applies to women as well. So it's the masculine part of them or it's the masculine part of a man. And so it's very much about the outward, the the the, the, the way in which a man or the that masculine energy takes care of things and exerts itself and looks after, you know, is, is the sort of leader, that, that masculine type of yang energy. The left side obviously therefore is the opposite of that. It's the home. It's the internal. It's the taking. It's the giving in within ourselves. It's the feminine, um, and both of these can relate to feminine relationships with feminine people, relationships with masculine people. It's not just the feminine masculine within ourselves, and this is also a great conflict within our world. You know, we we see that all the time between the male and female energies rather than just saying men and women. It's between that masculine and feminine. They're there to create the balance of the two, the yin and the yang, the sun and the moon, but they are often in conflict. Or we can have that conflict within ourselves. So, you know, you're talking about the pain in your right foot, the bottom of your right foot, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like as far away from you as you can get. But the truth is, it's the furthest, it's, it's the first part of the movement that you take. When we walk, we, our foot goes forward first. And so it's, you know, the moving center is from your hips down into your feet. Your feet go forward first. So it's like that movement you're taking in the world. And the bottom of the feet is very much that connection to the world. And on the right side, you're looking at that masculine part of you, the right side that's exerting it, that's reaching outward. And so a conflict with that. Now you need to go within that to find what the conflict might be speaking of. And only you can know that. I know. I know what it is. <laughs> so, yeah. And I've been working on working with that. And like I said, it used to bother me so bad. There would be days when I was, I couldn't walk and now it's getting, you know, it's getting better and better and better to where I don't really even feel it anymore. So, it, you know, it was, it took some work for me to come to grips with a lot of stuff, but I know exactly what it what it, what it was around. We got probably like maybe five more minutes left, but I wanted to kind of tackle maybe the last, what I would call common things that people might experience in their lives and what might be the body-mind technique behind discovering more about them. The first thing is something I know that you had, that's sciatica and back pain. How can people 
get into more of their thoughts and maybe changing their thoughts around these these types of okay the, the, i mean i don't have and, and i want to correct you on this one there's no tech one technique okay okay I'm, and many people have i have been upset with me about this they've been wanting me to give them a technique and i'm not going to give them a technique they have to look within themselves it's that simple but when it comes to something like sciatica i have a wonderful story on that one yes which was due to uh, somebody else reminding me that really what's going on within you, the, the, your brain is basically in charge of the whole thing. And so a pain in your body is going to be coming from your brain. And John Sarno, Dr. Dr. John Sarno is the person to really read on this one because he's superb. And he's talking about how in the unconscious, predominantly most issues refer to either rage or grief. The most of the issues, unresolved issues within the unconscious will come from either rage or grief. And when one of these or both of these come too close to the surface, the unconscious or the conscious mind rather puts a sort of lid on them. It says, no, you can't deal with this in your conscious world. So it creates a physical pain to divert your attention. I'm really simplifying it here. Read John Sarno if you want more information. However, what I did was, what I say in the book as well, is I just sat down and I wrote probably three pages every morning. And I would always use the same question. Because if you use the same question the first day, you'll completely get all the conscious stuff out of the way. And the second day, you'll still get some of that. By the third day, you're going to be having to go into the unconscious. You're going to have to be going deeper to answer that same question. Whatever the question is, you know, like, why have I got sciatica? It's simple as that. You begin to go deeper. And I began to touch in on a lot of the rage and the grief and to let that go. But before, I missed a step. Before I did that, I, had, I was at a point where I was spending probably, no, oh, just an exorbitant amount of money, a couple of thousand a month on deep tissue massage, painkillers, reflexology, you name it, anything to try and get sciatica cured. And the moment I got that it's really in the brain, not in my leg, I quit everything. I had to stop seeing it as a physical problem and stop keeping it going as a physical problem. By having all the massage or whatever, I was still thinking of it as a physical problem. The moment I stopped, and I had had sciatica for nine months at that point, Three weeks later, I was completely free of pain mm -hmm. because I stopped thinking of it as a physical problem. I started accepting it was an unconscious problem, and I started working with the unconscious and trying to release it through the writing and through the meditation. And three weeks later, I, was, I stopped the painkillers. I stopped everything. Three weeks later, I was free of it, and it hasn't come back since. So other things might have happened, but <laughs> not mm -hmm. that one. All I'm trying to say here is, I'm not suggesting that you give everything up immediately, all your treatments at all, not at all. But you need to be able to ask yourself, what treatment do I actually need here? Do I need a physical treatment or do I need a psycho-emotional treatment or do I need to be working with myself? And just keep asking yourself that and seeing where the real healing needs to take place. Yeah, you mentioned that in a book, that, and, and it's uh, it's profound because I think a lot of times we don't get an answer right off. Like if we ask ourselves a question and we don't get that answer right off, then it's like, oh, it's never going to come. And one thing that I've learned is that sometimes that message 
may come in the most roundabout way. It could be, I, I've, I've been sitting down watching television and a commercial pops on about something that I had asked myself a question about. And I'm like, oh, there's my answer. But it may have, it may have taken a week or two weeks or maybe even a month before I got that answer. But you touch a lot on that in the book. It's like when you start listening, just I, what I gathered was just to be patient and wait on the answer. And a lot of times in our culture, we're not taught to be patient. We're taught that, oh, I'm asking because of the way our culture is, our society is. We're like, I call us the microwave society because it's like we want things right then. But I think in, in spiritual matters and uh, consciousness matters, it's important to be able to ask, stand back and know that the answer is going to come, but it may not come when you think it's going to. I think this is where the beauty of, of meditation, of sitting quietly, of being receptive, and as you say, just asking and then just being open to receiving. Uh, meditation is so important to me that answers all of our questions in the silence and in the stillness. There's no fear. There's no questioning. There's just the stillness. And and to me, that is the answer, is the stillness. And I pray, I hope, that all of your listeners will be able to do that. Well, I'm, I'm going to reluctantly let you go. I know this podcast could have been two hours, probably three hours or more, because I think that this is something that everybody needs to hear, because I've heard so many stories of people who have gone from doctor to doctor to doctor oh. and still are looking for things to... Yeah something to take or someone to tell them something without realizing that the answers are always within themselves. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and that, and to trust themselves, to trust themselves because they, the reason they're not, they're going to all these people is because they don't have that relationship to themselves. They don't have that trust. And we need to be able to really, like you said, be able to trust what we hear, what we're given and, and be friends with ourselves, really make friends with ourselves so that, we're not always asking somebody else to fix us. Deb Shapiro, your body, your book is Your Body Speaks Your Mind. Very good book in a lot of things here. If you're listening, we didn't even touch on, but I would advise you to go and read the book because there's a lot of great information in here. Even a CD, if you're looking into exploring this more, there's a CD with the book and the book is available. I got mine from Amazon, so I know it's on Amazon and it's probably on every other reading outlet where you might purchase books. But Deb, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, it was fun. Thank you, Darren. Thank you.